You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you follow the Game of Thrones and enjoyed the dynastic politics, murder, and intrigue of rivals vying for power, religious studies professor and historian Bruce Chilton believes you might really enjoy learning about the real-world Herodian dynasty. And to be candid, he makes it easy. His latest book, The Herods, Murder, Politics, and the Art of Succession, brings to life an old and ancient conflict with context and details that makes the narrative feel both accessible and relevant. Let's get to my conversation. What draws you to tell these stories? What drew you to tell this story in particular right now? There were several elements in this. Uh, Of course, because I've been working on the New Testament for a while, I've always had to engage in one way or another uh, with the dynasty of the Herods. But then it occurred to me that this whole dynasty had not been put together before so that you could see it unfold according to its own dynamics and also understand how it reacted, particularly in relationship to Christianity and Judaism. It seemed to me that we can understand better why Christian teachings emerged and Judaic teaching emerged in response to particular power plays by Herodian rulers. So in the end, the book also became a reflection on the way that political power is worked out in the midst of religious pluralism. And that, strangely enough, sounds like what's going on in our century. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Very much so. Where did you go to piece together the characters and bring them to life? Individuals that are, are in the history, but they're not really known to us. You, you created full characters here. What did you turn to? What were your source materials? Yeah, I put together uh, different kinds of sources. So, for example, there are some materials in the New Testament, some of which are quite valuable. And uh, also in Judaic literature. So I became familiar with those sources over the course of time. So it was fairly straightforward for me to survey that. In addition, the Herodians took up the attention of several Roman historians. So one can trace their influence there. Even the poet Juvenal decided he would write a joke about Berenike. Uh, So by uh, considering Roman historians, Suetonius, Dio Cassius, figures of that kind, uh, it's possible to fill out the uh, picture. But then the single most dense source is that of Josephus. Uh, Josephus uh, wrote a history of the Jewish war that I mentioned that broke out during the 60s. He also wrote a complete account of the history of the Jews as he understood it. Who did you have in mind as you were sitting down to write this book? What does your audience need to know? Do you need to have a history degree? Do you need to know the backstory? I think that a reader who simply wanted to follow the story could do so. It actually is as complicated as, say, Game of Thrones, but it's certainly no more complicated than that. That is, one can see the characters interacting. One gets to know them so that when they start behaving in the way that they do, you get accustomed to it over the course of time. 
And this is true of the Herodians themselves. It's also true of the various Roman emperors who come into the picture. It's true of Jesus and Paul, and also Judaic teachers of the time, such as Shemaiah, who comes up several times. So I think it is, in fact, uh, perfectly plausible to read it as a narrative, and that's basically the way in which I intended the main text of the book. I think that what strikes me most about uh, my students at the moment is that they are hungry for something that will give them a grounding in what is going on around them, how it is that it's possible to view the social setting in which they live and discover something that is humanly valuable and coherent. Because it enables you to understand just how Christianity unfolded in its political environment. You are a historian, you're a priest, and you're an author that likes to bring us books of historical figures and cast them in a way that make them accessible. I'm curious, what drew you to the story of Herod the Great and his family? The dynasty is the most important political force there was during the first century from the point of view of both Christianity and Judaism. Many of the most basic ideas that we have about government in both those religious systems were formed in reaction to what members of the Herodian dynasty were doing. And of course, different members of the dynasty pursued differing policies at differing times. So you can really only understand a figure, say, such as St. Paul, from the point of view of an understanding of knowing who he was dealing with when he was immersed in the politics of the Near East. How many people know about Herod the Great? If I were to walk up to someone on the street and say, Herod the Great, one word, how much awareness is there, do you think, among, you know, the general population? I think the general population is well aware of the name Herod. The difficulty is that it wasn't just one person. It was an entire dynasty that went from the time of Herod's father, Antipater, until his great-granddaughter, Berenike. So it covers the entire period from the first century before the Common Era until the end of the first century of the Common Era. So what typically happens in modern culture is that one Herod is confused with another. And at times, they held very different positions. Some of them were actually kings. Herod the Great was a king. His grandson, Agrippa, was a king. But the others had rather more minor roles assigned to them by the Roman Empire. And therefore, the amount of power they could exert varied. And their attitudes towards Jews and Christians also differed. So the difficulty is the name is known, but the personalities and the power politics are largely unfamiliar. So what I wanted to do in my study of the Herods is to bring them together so that the reader can see how one period of rule led on to the next and how they influence both Christianity and Judaism. So the crucifixion of Jesus 
happened because of an agreement between the Herodian ruler of Galilee, whose name was Antipas, who had long wanted to do away with Jesus because he saw Jesus as a political threat, and the Roman prefect of Judea, whose name, of course, was Pontius Pilate. Now, a person could only be put to death by crucifixion at the order of a Roman officer. No Herodian ruler could do that. But he was instigated in this role by Antipas, the Galilean ruler, and also by Caiaphas, the high priest of the time. So I described the way in which those figures worked together and how what they did was related to Roman politics at the same time. So this seismic event in the history of Christianity is directly related to the way in which the Herodians played their own particular power politics. You know, as you're describing it, it also lays out this relationship between church and state in a way that many who argue and think about it through modern context may not appreciate. Do you think that there is a value for people today who are interested or intrigued by how our politics and how our faith leaders and institutions interact? Do you think they could learn something from the history of of understanding this period of time? I think there's a lot to be drawn from this period because In every case, when a Herodian ruler was successful, it's because that ruler, whoever he was and whoever she was, knew how to negotiate two forces. On the one hand, of course, there was the Roman Empire. They were the ones who actually made political appointments and also provided the military might that made for successful rule. But they also had to accommodate to their constituencies within Judaism. This was by no means an easy task. If we believe today that we live in a time of religious division, we should spend some time visiting in the first century, where you see far more deep lines of cleavage and often recourse to violence. On occasion, There had to be, from the point of view of the dynasty, a direct and violent response. But on the whole, they managed to accommodate these two apparently contradictory forces. And I suggest that this is a moment of instruction in history, because the fact is that one cannot successfully govern a people if those people believe that their religious convictions are entirely alien to the order of the day. One has to have a degree of commitment to government, at least to the extent that it makes one's pursuit of ultimate values possible. I think myself that this has been uh, a wisdom which has been largely lost in the modern period, where the separation of church and state has been confused with separation of religion and state. A successful state is one in which differing religious constituencies can see themselves as able to pursue their aims without undue interference from the state. 
So it's this almost coexistence as opposed to dominance within one sphere versus the other. I think that's exactly the case. I think that's well put. And there has been a tendency when the idea of separation of church and state is invoked to think that means the state takes the place of religious commitment. That can lead to disastrous results. Either it will succeed and one discovers a totalitarian state that takes on board far too much of the values of a society, as happened during the Third Reich, or in attempting to do that, there will be an enormous resistance within the population uh, because that kind of confusion, the tendency to make the state the religion, is one which I think is legitimately opposed by people who have any sort of religious conviction. When you look at the modern discourse, when you look at the modern discussions around how belief and politics become incredibly galvanizing for different constituencies, what instruction, what lesson do you draw from the history that you study? I think there are several insights that emerge out of that. One is that within any kind of religion which has within it many possibilities for the ordering of life and the structure of belief. Whenever one of those attempts to overtake the other and to insist that it alone has the access to the truth of the religion, the result is that that faction begins to take on some of the characteristics of a state, right? It's beginning to make its own authority into the kind of legitimate violence that a state is made from. So there is an extent to which one can see in the first century that there was an ecology of belief which was healthy when differing groups could pursue their own particular values, but also that it became unhealthy in moments of violent revolt, which broke out on several occasions during the course of the first century. And some of this uh, revolutionary activity was from within Judaism. There was also a tendency under some of the Roman emperors, I think especially of Caligula, to assert their own authority as if it were a religion. The emperor Caligula actually ordered a statue of himself to be set up in the temple in Jerusalem, an act which it was widely regarded, even by Roman historians, as something that would have assured a huge civil war throughout the empire. He was actually prevented by Agrippa I, who interceded with the emperor to prevent him from doing what would have been a disastrous policy. So when groups attempt to monopolize the range of religious activity, the result is a disturbance of the ecology and also increasing violence. What positive lessons do you take from this first century filled with all this intrigue, murder, and political machinations? Part of what I have drawn from this is that the Herodians themselves, of course, were obsessed with power. 
And in many ways, they're a remarkably unreflective group of people because their pursuit is entirely practical. But their commitment was not only to themselves, their commitment was also to Judaism. Herod the Great himself was the one person responsible for extending the building of the temple in Jerusalem so that the remains of the temple that you can see today in Jerusalem date from the period of Herod the Great. He made that a centerpiece of his entire rule, also encouraging an enormous public works project and the genuine prosperity of Jerusalem. There was also the emergence of a surprising prosperity, a self-confidence, and the ability to pursue varying kinds of the religion of that time, including Christianity. At the end of the day, despite some sporadic persecution of Christians by Herodians, which did occur, I mentioned Antipas. Antipas also killed John the Baptist. But those were for political reasons. Antipas saw John the Baptist and Jesus as political threats. And later, Agrippa, though a very noble person, was responsible for killing James, the son of Zebedee, because he saw, like the emperor Claudius, that one could choose minorities among Jewish groups and make them scapegoats for violence when it emerged. As you describe the strategy of choosing scapegoats, I have to say it reminds me of the medieval roots of the anti-Semitic blood libel myth and the way it also emerged as a tool for leaders to distract away from problems and threats to their authority. I think the idea that it is a distraction is incisive. There was without question before the emergence of Christianity pronounced anti-Semitism. Judaism was seen as an alien form to many people in the Roman Empire. And because Jews were a minority, they could be scapegoated so that often there would be riots that broke out against the Jewish population. It might be in major cities such as Alexandria and Caesarea Maritima. It might be in small villages. And then the Romans were called in to adjudicate that dispute to try to make sense of it. Much the same thing happened from the mid-century of the first century when Christians themselves were seen as a minority within the minority, which made them all the more tempting as a target for those who wanted to distract. The most famous case of this is the Emperor Nero in the year 64 when a fire broke out in Rome. Nero himself was actually suspected of being involved in the fire, and he pinned the blame on the Christians for the fire, and so authorized a pogrom within the city of Rome. Judaism has been in the minority right through this period, and it has been the most tempting target for various forms of conspiracy theory. I would be remiss to not point out that the conspiracy theory continues today in the QAnon movement. Unlike the first century, today people have a lot of avenues for getting information and for diving into conspiracies. Take us back to the first century. What was life like for the commoner? The most important thing to bear in mind, I think, is that one was attempting subsistence. Our notions of making one's life better 
of becoming more prosperous. Those are really luxuries of the modern period. And within the ancient period, and specifically in the Near East, the concern was to survive, to enable the family to continue intact, and to make peace as best one could with the differing forces that were surrounding that family. That included the Herodians, but they were also Romans. It's also a period of significant activity by people who today would be regarded as terrorists or criminals or freedom fighters, depending on one's point of view. And so one was attempting to negotiate all that while simply, in the most basic sense, making a living with very little in the way of educational attainment on the whole. Another factor to bear in mind is that literacy is not general, so that this is a culture that largely is transmitted on the basis of oral memory, recitation, songs, performance of religious rituals and duties. So this is a period which is really unlike our own. The idea of progress, which we largely take for granted, was really not a part of the intellectual furniture of this period. That's why the emergence of these religious systems is so fascinating. If you take the example of Jesus, who is very much in a minority, he's not only Jewish in the Roman Empire, he's in Galilee, which is not the privileged part of historic Israel. Within Galilee, he's born in a village where it is well known that there are problems about his paternity, however you look at it, which makes him largely an outcast. And yet, by means of his mastery of teaching, of metaphor, of acting on behalf of the way that he saw God operating in the world, he attracted a constituency. He made a movement without any kind of economic basis, as would normally be understood. And that example is something that is also duplicated elsewhere in the Judaism of this period, where despite apparently being hopeless, these people constructed very clear vehicles of hope. Bruce Chilton is the author of The Herods, Murder, Politics, and the Art of Succession. He's a religion studies professor at Bard College and is the author of several publications and popular historical biographies. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to head over to our website where you can find the full interview. That's at interfaithradio.org. That's all for this week's show. Our producer is Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe. I hope you are well, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.